0: To Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights, and news so they can maximise their commercial programmes and achieve best practice. There's no doubt that the pandemic has whacked us all, and there was a period where we were so reactive to what was going on and how it played out in different markets that it felt like we just couldn't catch our breath. These days, however, we've mostly started moving forward. Some markets differently to others, and in that, we've seen some really innovative work. Now, one section of the sponsorship industry that has been a great source of wisdom and guidance, leadership, and and innovation to both rights holders and brands has been agencies. Of course, brands and rights holders are full of really smart people, lots of our listeners. But interestingly, the smart people at agencies, combined with their unique views from working with a wide array of rights holders and brands, gives us a much more holistic view of the industry right now and where it's going, especially considering that so many agencies work across multiple geographic regions. Last episode, we heard from Andrew Clark, Agency Director at Octagon Australia. And in this episode, we continue hearing from inside an agency by welcoming Stephen Hutchison, Managing Director at Fuse in London, who discusses the industry right now and where it's going. Hi, I'm Daniel Oyston, host of Inside Sponsorship, and you're listening to Episode 87, brought to you by Core Software. Thanks for joining us for this episode. I hope you're well. Time for some shout-outs. Well, just the one shout-out this episode, and it goes to Andrew Mikhail who connected with me on LinkedIn after recently moving into working in the sponsorship space as Head of Commercial Partnerships at Parramatta Eels, based in Sydney, Australia, who play in the National Rugby League. Andrew dropped me a note to let me know that someone introduced him to the podcast. Thank you to whoever that was, and that he is enjoying hearing from others in the industry and that the podcast is a really useful tool. Great to hear from you, Andrew, and go the mighty eels. As I said earlier, our guest today is Stephen Hutchison, Managing Director at Fuse, who are powered by Omnicom Media Group and provide marketing and commercial services for brands and rights holders specializing in partnerships and experiences across sport, entertainment, causes, and And culture. Stephen is the managing director at Fuse, Omnicom Media Group's specialist sports and entertainment division. And his role at Fuse involves providing strategic support for a number of global brands, including activation, evaluation, strategy, and the acquisition and negotiation of rights. He has experience in leading projects across many of the world's leading platforms, including. UEFA Champions League, Olympics, World Cup, F1, America's Cup, and that's for brands including Nissan, HTC, McDonald's, Vodafone, and Visa. And before we hear from Stephen, Daniel Collier Hill, Corps Commercial Director, APAC, has delivered part two of his three part blog series, which focuses on hacking sponsorship. And he joins us to discuss the latest blog, which looks at after the chaos, and specifically hacking asset management and hacking creative. Here's Daniel. Daniel Collier-Hill, welcome back to the show. I'm picking up where we left off with part one of your series, which looked at planning for the return. I know that you wanted to continue taking a look at what some of the industry's best are doing across various functions. And this month, you've taken a look at two areas that should really work together, but often they don't, and that's because... So often, one can take priority over the other, and that is asset management and creative. So let's lead off with asset management. Talk to us about hacking asset management.
1: It's the the super unglamorous part of the sponsorship industry, but here we really wanted to explore how uh, we begin to tackle the most challenging assets to create, deliver, then how we integrate them into the broader marketing mix doesn't matter where in the world you're listening to this, there's a pretty high chance that you've been part of a sponsorship deal in the past six months that's just turned upside down. Whether it was the, the 200 tickets, the VIP hospitality passes or pre-game activations that just can't be used the same way as they you know originally been planned to. But change has been pretty much the only constant in 2020. Of late, though, we've seen a trend in new clients referring to a, almost a, a total lack of visibility, over what assets have been contracted, what's still available and how a portion of spend can be repurposed but then also effectively reported on at the same time. i run out of breath just saying it. In my opinion, look, although some have been built a super bad card with you know, furloughs and redundancies, sponsorship or partner services, managers, whatever we want to call them, have really earned their money during this period of time, right? you know, being able to manage expectations on both sides of a deal in line with managing internal inventory levels can be really hard. And interestingly, you're like this. As part of a survey we ran in uh, APAC recently, respondents called out asset management as the third most challenging aspect of sponsorship during COVID behind measurement and then integration into brand strategy. For me, it feels like these three are you know more prevalent than ever, but uh, they've been at the top of, of these types of lists and surveys for yeah, what well, feels like forever, but based on commentary that we've received that call from both clients and non-clients about asset management, I would suggest a few things to start hacking this space.
0: So you've listed three things, as you said, to start hacking this space. The first one you've listed in your blog this month is stop working from the contract.
1: You sound like my mother talking to me about something (laughs) that I'm doing wrong. And look, this should go without saying, but sometimes contracts are written years before and might not be as up-to-date as you think they are. Drawing a line through a delivered asset or a benefit won't allow you to track any hard costs, values, or tasks related to its actual delivery
0: it's an important point but then mixed into that is the second point that you've got listed here which is making sure somebody else knows what is actually in the contract
1: yeah and another one we often have rights holders and brands who own the delivery space we can probably all think of a person and, and i don't mean to call them out but everyone has ownership of this and can sometimes get a little bit tunnel visioned. This can be super counterproductive, especially in today's environment. The person who knows everything gets furloughed or goes on leave. How on earth do you know what goes on and where and how it's used? Um, it, it also lends itself to the saying that that's how we've always done it, which is something we don't want to hear anymore in the sponsorship world.
0: The third one you've listed here is understand what's in the toolbox. What do you mean by Toolbox.
1: Yeah, look, by that, I mean your asset register or or inventory, but again, whatever you want to call it, I'm not referring to a need to note how to repurpose assets. I'm actually acknowledging an elephant that is seemingly being ignored and that's new and renewing deals. Imagine going to buy a car or going to a car yard, I should say. You'd expect the salesperson to have a base knowledge or some sort of understanding of what cars are actually available. At a bare minimum, at at least in my opinion, we should be aware of the asset categories. But you can confidently say you're aware of everything that's contracted and still available because it's going to allow you to stay on top of new assets that shape new and renewing deals. Because if I'm a, I'm a betting man, I'd say that there's going to be a big portion of deals that look totally different in 2021.
0: agree with you. So some great points there around hacking asset management and specifically to stop working from the contract to make sure someone else knows what is in the contract and then understand what's in the toolbox. Because as you said, there's a big portion of deals that will look very, very different in 2021. So that's hacking asset management. Let's move on to hacking creative.
1: So part two of this, we wanted to explore the impact COVID has had on the creative function in sponsorship and how it plays a pivotal role in bringing us closer to not only customers but our audience and fans in general. Since the pandemic began, it's caused utter chaos uh, across almost every industry and job function, including advertising and sports marketing. Creative directors across the globe have been you know, given arguably the hardest task in making sure that our beloved brands stay front of mind with relevant content. And, and, and look, t- take a second here, huge challenge, which uh, I'm sure you'll appreciate. The array of budget cuts, headcount reductions, general restrictions, just the general need to stay up to date with what consumer attitudes and, and behaviors are like has been nothing short of extraordinary. Um, some would argue that it's forced our creative directors and broader advertisers back to the drawing board to help create timely and relevant content in an even shorter period of time. I think for me personally, seeing creatives deliver and repurpose imagery and film footage around the globe has given me uh, some new level of appreciation and admiration for what they do. And look, if you need proof of that, kind of look at what Nike's just done with their latest commercial. It was put together entirely from repurposed imagery and footage. If I can again lean on Walk for its 2020 content strategy report, there's some really simple but effective hacks we can learn from in this space.
0: And you've listed those there from that 2020 content strategy report. The first one you've got here is content should aim to be part of culture.
1: Yeah, so this is consider different content formats to deliver a message. We've seen the production of love songs, feature films, and even podcast series win awards based on their effectiveness. And And I'm going to steal a quote here from James Tucker, but the beauty of content is that it doesn't have to feel like an ad these days.
0: I think that's a great point, making content part of the culture. Following on from that, the second point that you have listed here is content can drive behavior change.
1: Yeah, look, and that's probably super prevalent in whatever industry you're in, whatever position you have on a on a social issue or or, or a cause. Content can build emotional connections with audiences that ultimately drive action through powerful messaging. If I can lean on a a core favorite to explain just google distracted goalkeeper by tech and soul
0: Yeah I love that what you would call a campaign around being distracted and the goalkeeper in the different contexts that that's provided in and the behavior that it's trying to change it's very powerful The fourth one you've got here is considering context benefits content strategies what do you mean by that
1: A better understanding of the purpose of a sponsorship deal in context to what we're actually trying to achieve can play a big role in making content strategy more effective. This can include a range of approaches, but often requires, you know, with the question of how do we improve the interaction with our fans or consumers? So, I mean, look, if you're not fortunate enough to have creative directors, go and talk to your CMO or head of marketing or anyone in your, your marketing team. If you can't do that, well then try and revert back to some of the advice from our friends, Tim Morris and Adam Hodge. Talk to as many people in the organization as you can this is going to give you a really different perspective from everyone on an issue or a challenge or, or general business objective. And it will allow you to hack whatever it is you're trying to create.
0: Some great advice there. Over the last couple of months, you've delivered part one, planning for the return. We've just looked at after the chaos and, and look at looked at hacking asset management and hacking creative. What have you got for us next month?
1: So uh, the third and final one to round us off, we want to have a look at hacking perceived value. And I want to focus on the word perceived there and, and particularly look at how COVID has changed, not only the commercial value of assets, but how we also value the intangibles, how we might use things now might be totally different. So it's a, a different purpose for the asset, which will bring in an entirely different value from a both a rights holder and a brand perspective. And then the second part to that is we want to look at hacking segmentation. So Again, crucial on both sides of the deal, but how we now need to dive even deeper into the trends, interests, and behaviors of consumers and fans to really drive that meaningful content and relationship.
0: Great chat and listeners, if you want to read all of those points and Daniel's wisdom, head along to the blog at coresoftware.com and of course, he mentioned a couple of great resources or things to go and have a look at. That's the You Can't Stop Us Now Nike ad, the Walk 2020 content strategy and Uber's Distracted Goalkeeper and there are embedded videos and links to those resources in the blog at coresoftware.com. Daniel, really looking forward to part three. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks very much, mate. Talk soon.
0: Our guest today is Stephen Hutchison, Managing Director at Fuse, who are powered by Omnicom Media Group and provide marketing and commercial services for brands and rights holders specializing in partnerships and experiences across sport, entertainment causes and culture. Stephen is the Managing Director at Fuse, Omnicom Media Group's specialist sports and entertainment division. His role at Fuse involves providing strategic support for a number of global brands, including activation, evaluation strategy, and the acquisition and negotiation of rights. He has experience in leading projects across many of the world's leading platforms, including UEFA Champions League, Olympics, World Cup, F1, America's Cup, and that's for brands including Nissan, HTC, McDonald's, Vodafone, and Visa. He joins us now to take us inside Fuse, as well as discussing the industry right now and where it's going. Here's Stephen. Stephen, welcome to the show. COVID has seen us all adjust our working situation with so many people spending more time at home. And so during restrictions, has there been something that you've thrown yourself into in terms of maybe learning something new or a passion project that's always been on your list?
2: Truthfully, not really. I I should have done. One of my things I wanted to do was pick up where I'd left off from, from school, actually, learning Spanish. But work has actually been incredibly busy and I haven't got round to it. Partly, I can't just blame work, it's partly my fault as well. But um so I didn't get around to that. Well, I am quite a keen runner. So I've been doing a lot of running. Because so I've done um, I've done four marathons and I'm trying to do the big global six. I was supposed to do Edinburgh actually earlier this year, which got cancelled, which isn't one of the global six actually, but it got cancelled. So I've been trying to do a lot as much running as I can. And actually working from home, I suppose, has slightly allowed me to be a bit more flexible with when I can and can't do my running. So yeah, it's not a new project as such, but I suppose I've uh, I've tried to up my game as far as running is concerned.
0: Very good. Do you listen to any uh, Spanish podcasts in terms of learning the language while you're running?
2: Well, no, actually. I've been watching Narcos, though. My girlfriend and I hadn't watched it fully through, so we just decided both, both of us were at kind of different stages of it, and so we just started it again from the beginning. So that's actually, I suppose, picked up a little bit of my Spanish knowledge again but I I haven't done anything like what I was planning to do in terms of learning it again.
0: Very good. Well, for the past two years, Fuse has been tasked with supporting Pepsi to identify and secure a a globally renowned artist to perform at the UEFA Champions League final opening ceremony. What's that experience been like for you?
2: Amazing. really has. PepsiCo have been a brilliant client for us in a number of ways, but I suppose honing in on the the opening ceremony piece, that was a, a, actually an asset that we created and took to PepsiCo and UEFA, I guess, as part of the original deal, when we were trying to, well, convince UEFA that PepsiCo was the right partner, and obviously convince PepsiCo internally that the sponsorship was the right thing for them to do. What it allowed them to do was continue on behavior that they had been known for as a brand, Pepsi, particular Pepsi. The, the deal with UEFA is actually more encompassing than just Pepsi. It's across a number of their portfolio brands. but thinking about Pepsi specifically with the opening ceremony, you know, they're they're synonymous with music and have been for many, many, many years. They do the Super Bowl halftime show. They sponsor that as well. So it allowed them to take that behavior from another big global sport and bring it into football. And actually, from a UEFA perspective, it allowed UEFA to be able to make the platform more than just football. I mean, football will always be the primary piece of the puzzle. But... This allows them to take it in a bit, you know, bring in new audiences, have a different flavor to it from time to time as well. And actually, from a skill set perspective with Infuse, it's been great for our people. It's helped our entertainment team thrive because we've been doing some deals. You know, we've done some deals with the likes of the Black Eyed Peas, Dua Lipa, Imagine Dragons. So you know there's some pretty big global artists and all on all that comes with that record labels management and stuff. So it's helped us professionalise our offer as well. So it's been it's been really really it's been a really good project to be involved in, and hopefully it will continue for many years to come.
0: Outstanding, Stephen. You mentioned in a recent interview with Sports Systems that sport has really found it, its purposeful voice during the pandemic and, and wider social issues of the. Past few months, can you explain and elaborate on what you mean by that?
2: What I was getting at was, I suppose, a wider theme that I think will come off the back of the pandemic. What we feel, you know, at Fuse and myself, that COVID will result in. We don't want to just be reactive to very specific things that COVID has uh, as created. But what likely we think is likely to happen is certain changes that were happening already will just have their pace quickened. So, if I go outside of sport for a second. I guess an analogy would be the high street, you know, in the UK, I'm sure it's the same uh, where you are, that everyone says the high street's dying, people are going to shop online, shops will have to start closing. That was starting to happen. But then what happens in a pandemic is we're all forced to stay indoors. So no one could actually physically, people that still love to go to the high street and shop weren't able to. So they probably started using online methods to do their shopping more than they had done before. And probably won't go back to, or a lot of them won't go back to shopping on the high street in the same way they did before, because they've realised that online shopping works. It's quicker. Sometimes you can get savings that you might not get on the high street, so on and so on. So I suppose using that analogy, I think it's it's going to the pace of change will quicken. And I think from a purposeful perspective, bringing it back to your question, sport has always had that link with purpose, whether that's direct charitable causes or whether that's just about bringing people together. Um, you know, health and fitness, whatever it might be, it's always had that link, but it's never necessarily been front and center, particularly when you think about brands and the way they engage with sport. Quite often they're they're engaging with it as part, you know, to engage with the passion rather than necessarily some of the other more purposeful elements that could come. But obviously I think with COVID being what it's been, you know, you you turn on your TV today and watch an ad break. So many brands now have got charity messages at the end of their, as a sign off. And in some ways, I think that potentially is going to become a center of criticism for brands because it potentially might feel a bit disingenuous. They've just bolted it on suddenly now. And actually, I feel that in long term, sports can provide brands with a meaningful way of delivering a purposeful message because they can actually do things. You know, if you take Olympic sports, some of this funding that sponsorship provides actually helps that sport, the the training of athletes, it helps that sport actually happen. And then you can. So that's one angle, and obviously taking it down to communities and how people might get more involved in sport and what that can do for people's mental health, physical health, and so on and so on. So the examples I was referring to at the time were the likes of what you've seen if we take football here in the UK, the Premier League, they've obviously got Black Lives Matter on, on players' sleeves. They're all taking a knee before the match. Thank you, NHS in the UK again. They've got that on people's shirts. Marcus Rashford himself, has done a lot about uh, you know meals for uh, school meals for kids. You've had some of the other players who have talked about how they can give money to help people through you know, who are suffering financially through the pandemic. So that was one part of it in terms of that sport has found its voice in terms of people are taking action, whether that's individual athletes or organisations. But then the other side of it, as I, going back to what I was saying before, it's more about the the ways in which brands I think can engage with sport moving forward and and this, the role that sport can can provide and actually differentiate, differentiate itself from other marketing channels that may not be able to give brands that, that direct and clear, purposeful angle.
0: The analogy of the high street dying and, and the speed of change being accelerated, I 100% agree with that. And I've just written a note here that we're seeing that as well with people working from home. There's always been a push for people to have flexible arrangements with their work. And, and just recently, particularly this week, I think it was Google, maybe Apple, some big global brands saying to their employees... COVID irrespective, you can just work from home forever now and and that's kind of what we expect people to do. So we are seeing that accelerate. I would 100% agree. You also recently wrote a piece for SportsPro that featured changes that you believe we as an industry that we must implement to affect positive change in the sports marketing industry. Is there one thing that really stands out as the most important in your eyes?
2: I think we need to get more digital We did some analysis pre COVID actually on the number of rights that sports rights orders are offering that could be considered digital. And it was around about twenty-three percent of all rights could be considered digital, which we think is really low. Because actually, you know, you know, fuse we're lucky we sit within Omnicom, so we we have access to a lot of data and trends and people that can point us in the right direction of where the overall marketing advertising industry is going. And this year, twenty twenty, it may have changed more recently, but for the first time ever, digital was going to be the number one platform in terms of spend. It was going to have more than 50% of all advertising money for the first time this year. So as a result, we are not supplying the demand that's out there. Brands are clearly wanting to spend money on digital advertising, and we've only got roughly a quarter of our inventory that can be considered digital versus them wanting to spend 50 or, you know, it's an average, but 50% of their money on digital platforms so they look at us and go well we you don't have enough stuff for me to spend on because you're not you haven't got the stuff in the places i want to spend it so i think rights holders and us, as as, you know activation agencies thought leaders whatever whatever guys it may be need to start thinking harder about what rights we can either convert to digital or what new rights we can create that that supply that demand for digital i just think that's absolutely crucial if we're going to thrive in the long term we need to i think the 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 uh, the term I used on the um, in the article was from analog to digital. I think we need to that that's a change we need to make, and we need to make it quickly.
0: Speaking of change, there seems to be a general consensus that measurement will get more attention and focus from both brands and, consequently, rights holders. As and I hate to use this such overused phrase, we return to normal, whatever that's going to look like. What role do you think measurement will have, or or how will measurement change in sponsorship over the next, say, 18 to 24 months?
2: If you'd have asked me my top two on the previous question, this would have been number two, actually. So it's a nice follow on. I think, again, this is another area where we are lacking a little bit and have been for a while. And I think COVID will probably necessitate an acceleration for us to move towards more to stronger measurement capabilities. So I think the change we'll see is that right now in a lot of cases, it's not a universal truth, but I'd say it's largely true, Is Sponsorship is measured separately to everything else that's done from a brand in a marketing sense. So they'll they'll measure their TV digital activity over here on the left, and on the right, there'll be this other report that comes in to show what the sponsorship is doing. It won't use the same data to tell you the result. So that's one problem, we're not integrating sponsorship into the overall measurement frameworks that brands have. And that's a responsibility, I think, of the brands to make sure it's implemented. It's considered alongside some of their other channels, but it's also, I think, a responsibility of us as an industry to make sure we are giving the right data to to enable it to be compared to other channels. And that's, I suppose, my second point on this: is that right now I think we focus too much on outputs rather than outcomes. So outputs are things like you delivered a four to one media return on investment. That's an output of the of the deal. Uh, it's useful. I'm not saying we should bin it altogether, but it doesn't really tell you what the so what test i think would be applied there three to one but so what like what does that actually mean i think we need to go deeper and that's what i mean in terms of going from an output of a media return on investment as just one example to more of an outcome in terms of as a result this happened you know more people came to our website it could be as simple as that or more people bought our product would obviously be the holy grail but that we just need to focus more on what the output of our of our activity has been so i think those two things so number one making sure that we are considered alongside other channels and can be compared against them. And number two, make, to, to enable that, making sure that we focus on the outcomes of our activity and actual impact to businesses, whether that's a brand uplift, whether that's a business outcome or another metric, as I say, it could depending on what the sector or brand is, it could be as simple as website visits, website traffic, you know, stuff like that. We need to focus a lot more on that stuff rather than some of the more superficial, sounds good, but doesn't really mean anything type of stuff. <laughs>
0: As a seasoned marketer, I 100% agree with you. You spoke there about the responsibility of brands to provide the right data, and we've started to see the phrase effectiveness brought into measurement-based conversations, and to Fuse's credit, you have staff that are dedicated to this area. Do you think we're now seeing a win for our industry and finally moving away from the traditional ROI model only?
2: Yeah, I do. I think actually, to rights orders, credit a lot of them are. I've recognised this, and are either working with businesses like ourselves. You know, we're not the only ones doing this. There are a number of other agencies and other businesses that are moving in this direction and are starting to engage with them. And I think we're at the early stages of it. I think a lot of the, those rights orders are in the sort of exploratory phase, where they're trying to understand what does effectiveness really mean for them, what data should they get, what data can they get, because obviously sometimes GDPR over here in Europe has some restrictions around what you can present back to third parties. So there are some realities around, you know, we'd all love to be able to say this person here as a result of engaging with our, with our, your sponsorship went and did this, 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 and this. It's not as straightforward as that in in real life. So actually I think that exploratory phase is looking at what data can we get hold of? What use, what's the usefulness of that data? And then how, how much does it cost? How long is it going to take? And is it exactly what brands want? Is it going to make the difference? Because I think, where rights holders would look at this is it's an investment for them, and if they are going to invest in this, it needs to prove that either brands are renewing their commercial relationships, or new brands are coming on to say new deals for them. There needs to be some sort of commercial return, which is obvious. But so I think there's that that's going on because you know a lot of the money that goes that from sponsorship that sports organisations get is then used to fund, as I said in a previous answer training of athletes which is kind of fundamental to the sport so they need to decide if they're going to spend this money on measurement is it really going to make the difference we truly believe it does the answer is a little bit different for every organization you talk to but i think that's where the industry's at we're in that sort of exploratory phase trying to understand what data we already have what data can we get to then be able to really make sure that the investment's worthwhile and that it has a a tangible impact for the brands that are sponsoring them but also helps that relationship along whether it's a renewal or a new deal
0: The measurement conversation can sometimes go on for hours depending on which marketing function you're talking to. You spoke about there being in an exploratory phase and we've spoken a lot about change already just in the 15 minutes or so that you and I have been talking. So for sponsorship, what do you think are the top measurement metrics that you see becoming prevalent over the next few years?
2: As a broad brush answer to that, the the answer would be brand uplift and business impact. But to be specific into those two. So the first one, when I say brand uplift, I mean metrics like brand opinion, brand consideration. But I think at the moment, sort of going back a little bit to a previous answer, I said that we focus a lot on outputs. We say things like people that are aware of your sponsorship have a 23% are 23% more likely to consider your product. Now that is a piece of data that's interesting, but brands when they're looking at consideration as a metric if we use that one as the example are looking at what their overall consideration is so 23 percent of fans of a sponsorship that have seen the sponsorship that are aware doesn't necessarily tell them what true impact that's having to their business so we're doing a lot of work on trying to say well okay let's take consideration and let's look at what sponsorships contribution to the brand's overall consideration is so we can say that actually you know, again, depending on what data we can get, we can't always answer this question, but the where we want to try and get to is to say, you know, if, you, if you've if you got of your audience brand X, you've got 60% of those that consider you, we can tell you because of the analysis we've done, that 20% of that 60% has come from your sponsorship because of these reasons. So that's what I mean in terms of we, we do provide data on brands that uh, sorry, fans that are aware of um, a, sponsor, a sponsor's activity has a, X percent more likelihood to consider a product than a brand a fan who has not been become aware of that brand sponsorship, but it doesn't it doesn't allow the brand easily to relate it back to really what's its overall contribution to my overall piece. Hopefully that makes sense. And I suppose the second piece in terms of business impact, it, which is which sponsorship, to be honest, has always been weak at, and in some ways, understandably, because of the nature of some of the agreements are more brand based activity than business led, but we haven't been able to prove. the the end impact on sales so i think that's another area we've got to focus on and again we've been doing some work with some of our clients on trying to insert sponsorship data into econometric models or mixed market modeling which actually shows the brand in a scientific way what the impact of their marketing activity has had on their bottom line and we want to try and take sponsorship into that conversation because even if it's brand-led and it delivers consideration we know that consideration ultimately will lead to sales. So let's try and isolate that where, where possible. As you mentioned in your question, we do have people dedicated to effectiveness. We've got a couple of marketing scientists because we really believe in this. We want to invest in this area. But the truth is we're, we're still in our a little bit in our exploratory phase. We have products and services we can offer. But the solution we've got to, we've now got a raft of case studies of having worked with you know, four or five big brands over the last year or two. And the answer is always somewhat different and it just gives you that great perspective to be able to look at different ways in which we can prove that and to varying degrees we can prove it but i think the win is that we really are now starting to bring sponsorship into that discussion around other channels and actually start to isolate sponsorship's contribution to brand metrics but also sponsorship's contribution to business impact as well and that's ultimately what brands will use to determine and and broadcasters and others to determine whether their investment in a property is worthwhile. And ultimately, one of the impacts of COVID is going to be at least for the short to medium term is that brands and other spenders of money are going to be very tight. They're gonna only spend where they have to and only spend on things that they have a certain degree of confidence will work. And I think that's why we need to take sponsorship into these conversations so we can show them that look, this is what sponsorship can do for you. This is why you should invest your money rather than some of these slightly sidebar types of conversations we tend to have.
0: I'm conscious of your earlier comments around digital spend tracking to fifty percent, but rights holders only having an asset mix where 23% of digital. So I hadn't anticipated those comments. So I'm I'm gonna ask this question anyway and I'm curious about what you might add to it. But before we dive into the future of assets and and just in a general sense, I've, I've written a question here to ask whether you think the types of assets we have in in current-day sponsorship deals have actually kept up with the needs or the trends of brands' marketing objectives.
2: Digital is the big answer to that, referring back to what I said before, in the sense that we're not supplying the digital demand. But I think also the other answer I would have to that is going to be around how we decide what Assets and rights we want to sell to sponsors. To, to explain what I mean, the process tends to be that a rights order will identify the inventory that they have to sell, and they will start to carve that up for different packages. Sometimes it's it's based on a sector. You know, if certain assets are more are relevant to an auto the auto sector than they are, say, uh, an FMCG. But largely speaking, they are just a kind of like divided up. and and sent out as part of the proposal to any sector with maybe some very minor differences. So I think that where we haven't kept up necessarily, we haven't been bespoke enough. And I think whether that's digital, whether it's physical, whatever it might be, I think we need to be doing our research a bit more upfront to actually take more tailored packages to brands that that will actually be more relevant to them and actually enable them to consider something a bit, I suppose, with a, an idea in the mind of how they might use it already, because I think some of the problems that we face, and it's not just a sponsorship thing, it's any marketing channel. Is if you're trying to pitch something to a brand or a business that's going to spend some money with you, they're getting that times multiplied by you know, depending on what the brand is, a hundred, a thousand, you know, a lot of stuff is coming their way, and it's a lot for them to do. It's a lot for them to keep on top of. So stuff that comes to them that's a bit generic is a bit broad brush that they then have to take and really make it work for them. They're probably going to put it to the bottom of their pile because if someone sends something else that goes, hey, I've done some research on your business, I can see these objectives being, uh, seem to be what you focus on. Here's a, here's a proposal based on what I think. You know, you're not going to, we're not going to get it 100% right. I'm not saying we're, we're, not, we're going to know everything about a brand just from an initial bit of research, but it just gives that chance of them being able to see it, how it might actually work for them based on where their business or brand is going rather than them having to do all that work themselves. So I think that's something we can do. And that is, I think that's neutral depending on what, and I think we should up our digital game. But outside of that, if a brand is very much about physical experiences, let's take a proposal to them that's about physical experiences. Obviously not right at the second, but you know, for the future, that kind of thing. So that that's probably the, the big area I think we can improve generally alongside obviously the digital comment I made earlier.
0: Speaking about improvement, and, and you also spoke about taking better tailored packages to brands, but, to do that, we need visibility of assets, and for in order for us to understand how we use assets in the future, both brands and rights holders, they do need to have visibility of contracted assets and available assets and, and how they fit into various strategies, both for themselves and for their partners. From your experience, has both parties been up to the standard in this space? And irrespective of your answer there, what changes in asset management would you love to see, particularly from the agency world?
2: I don't want to sound like I'm always criticizing because you know it's a bit unfair, because we learn as we go, right? And and you can we can always improve. So I suppose that's the perspective I'm coming from. It's not a criticism. Our industry's been phenomenally successful over the years. This is more about how we can how we can move forward and thrive in the long term rather than necessarily a criticism of the past. So I think my answer is no, they haven't been up to standard. So I think in order to benefit everyone in the in the new world. Brands need to let rights holders into their world a bit earlier and actually understand a bit more about their business and what really makes the business tick in terms of what, what's the CMO, what's the CEO, what's the chief commercial officer, whatever, whatever the position might be at the brand side, what's going to make them tick, what are the things that they are really focusing on so that rights holders can adjust rather than having to sort of either just assume in the background uh, certain things, what they read in the press or what they hear from little tidbits in meetings and what have you. But on the other side, I think with the right shoulder, they need to ask more questions and agencies as well need to ask more questions. We need to be reading more about our, business, our clients and sponsors, partners, whatever they may be as business in the trade press, listening to earning call, earnings calls, whatever. I'm guilty of this myself. Don't do enough of it. So we can understand and hear things that we can then take as a question to our day-to-day clients who can either answer it him or herself or take it back to the business so that we all have that greater understanding. So I think that comes with more conversation. But I think one of the key levers that we need to probably look at, and it isn't easy, is more flexible contracts, which is, again, something I mentioned in the article I did for Sports Pro. But sometimes we're asking brands to sign up for three-, five-year contracts, sometimes longer. And objectives of those brands change over time. And, but we could be restricted by what assets we have and rights we have based on the contract that was signed three years ago. So I think people need to be a bit more flexible with how they approach this for the greater good, because it's more likely the brand will activate the rights if they're getting, they're getting rights that are more relevant to their business and more likely to renew because they see the impact of right, using rights that are more relevant to their business too. So it kind of benefits everyone. So I think everyone needs to be more open. And I think in terms of changes to asset management from the agency world, I think it relates back to the answer I just gave, but I think we as an agency industry needs to be more inquisitive and not just do the job we're asked to do. You know, don't want to become uh, annoying <laughs> to rights holders or clients, which I'm sure sometimes we are. But ask questions. You know, rather than just doing what's told of us and providing a service, let's become much more of a strategic consultancy. That's a lot of what we've been trying to position our business towards. And that doesn't just mean writing the best strategy in the world. It, it can it can apply to asset management. You can be strategic in the way you uh, you manage assets. Ask questions: Is this really the right way we should be using this asset? Wouldn't we be better using this asset instead? Hey, uh, client, we haven't used this asset all year. Should we go back to the rights order and renegotiate our deal with them, or try and swap it out for another asset? I don't think we, as, a, as an industry body, ask those questions enough. And as again, going back to what I said about brands being very busy, rights orders being very busy, we as an agency world in sports marketing, we we look after we have people dedicated or or, or largely dedicated to some of these businesses. Let's use that dedication to to actually make their jobs easier and in turn it will benefit us because clients will respect us as, as partners rather than service providers and that's been better for the longer-term relationship than it is to be just be a commoditized service provider.
0: So you aren't the first person that we've heard speak about rights holders and brands being more open and flexible and, and talking to each other and also that idea of more flexible contracts, particularly those ones that are, that are longer term. So, why don't we see more of it if we hear people talking about it and it makes sense? Why don't we see more of it?
2: It's a good question because it's not easy. I think I mentioned in my previous answer it isn't easy, and it's uh, you know sometimes I feel sensitive to the fact that I'm saying these things that are somewhat easier to say than do, because I think the reason we don't see see it is because in a, especially in contracts where it's legal, there's you know there's, sometimes there are lawyers around the table. And their job is to make sure the contract is executed in a way that holds up legally from both sides. And the way to do that is have it absolute, right? Having something that's vague in a contract isn't good for the legal side of things, because it doesn't, if there was ever going to be a dispute, any vagueness means that you can't, it's not a clear answer of who's right and who's wrong and and where the remedy has to be delivered or not delivered or, or whatever. That's really, I think the reason for it. So I think, you know, Potential solutions to this, I think, are allowing a bit more for that vagueness to come in, and almost like telling the lawyers to back off a bit in terms of you know we where it, when it comes to commercial assets in particular. I guess it when it comes to indemnities, warranties, force majeure, stuff like that, there has to be the sort of legal uh, stipulations around that. I'm talking more here about commercial assets, almost asking the lawyers to back off a bit, allowing there to be a bit more vagueness, but also potentially utilising things like side letters or MOUs. Other kind of legal mechanics that don't necessarily have to be as strongly worded as contracts, but that are there as reference if needs be. So, using some of those different mechanics, I think, is a way of doing it. And then the other mechanic I would suggest, I suppose, more generally, again, every situation is different, but as a, a general level, would be things like um, review periods. And, you know, rights holders, under, totally understandably, do get a bit sensitive around uh, rights to terminate or renegotiate halfway through a contract. But there might be a middle ground to be reached on that, where it isn't necessarily that you have the right to abandon the sponsorship in totality. It might be that you have the right to renegotiate the terms or swap out certain assets. And if you have to be absolute, let's say, or oh, the, the, the sponsor has the right, ability to renegotiate three assets on an annual basis, subject to availability, other sponsors, and, and so on, and so on, the value, perceived value of those rights, and so on, and so on. So you know, having some stipulations around it so that the rights order isn't totally exposed but allowing a little bit more flexibility, so that's my answer that's why I think we uh, first part why we haven't, then I think how we can perhaps get around some of that because I understand why we haven't seen it, but I think there are solutions that perhaps we haven't used as much as we could to get round some of that some of those problems.
0: I think those comments around mid contract flexibility in review periods. I agree with you. I think sometimes we look at it from a negative perspective, but if we look at it from a positive perspective, there might be assets that are performing really, really well and the the sponsor wants to pour more effort into doing that. So they may actually want to give a rights holder more money or they may need to change that mix of assets because a competitor has entered the market or left the market or come into their area or, or whatever it might be. So I think those comments around mid-contract flexibility and review is a good one. In reference to perhaps some emerging asset categories and, and some that are maybe even slowly phasing out, what do you see as some of the biggest changes coming for assets?
2: Some of the media-based assets, I think, will ch- have to change in nature. If you take a lot of sport, it's either you know it might be front of shirts, LED boards around pitches or arenas or whatever the case may be. I think they will still become hugely valuable because they're tangible, they provide that media value we talked about earlier. And whilst obviously we need to prove maybe the impact of that more, that there's a there's a huge value to that. But I think the flexibility of those has to change. Sometimes you know, all you can do on those sort of media facing assets is put the brand name. There aren't many other industries in the world, as in marketing industry, sorry, in the world where the brief given is, hey, can you go and put my logo somewhere, please? That is not normally a brief that's given. There's got to be more to it. There's got to be some context. So you start to see, if we take LED boards as, as an example, we're starting to see virtual boards coming in there where you can tailor the message and the language to different markets around the world, animations so that brands can you know tell a bit more of a story within obviously the confines of a, an LED board, but can tell a bit more of a story around their brand. So I think that flexibility to tell deeper, stories even at the higher level is going to be a real emerging category and we've been talking to some big parties recently who are investing in the perimeter board led board space and some of the virtual replacement technology is now of a really high standard you know the likes of syria la liga some pretty serious rights owners are starting to utilize it and that will offer a huge flexibility and allow rights owners to sell in different territories than they could have done before and, and isolate those territories out rather than trying to sell globally. And there's only a handful of brands that you know, potentially want full global coverage versus maybe specific regions or even specific markets. So that's one thing. And then I think um, digital and social media are going to be the other two areas. I mean, it's kind of in line with, I guess, the, the, the wider marketing world, but more pe- increasingly the world is going more digital. Social media is bigger than ever obviously the, the, the platforms within it are slightly shifting in terms of you know tiktok emerging and twitter facebook instagram all, all kind of vying for their position and and having relative success and and failures around that but i think the way in which sport can connect with with fans through digital and social is going to be key for assets and how brands can use that because i think at the moment we're still very much in a this tweet this this um post was brought to you by the, the level of integration for the brand is, isn't hasn't been solved yet. So I think finding that way, and again, I'm not the most creative individual in the world, so I'm maybe not the best person to come up with the end idea. But finding a way of integrating the brand into the story on digital or social rather than just them being a sort of badging partner is going to be another emerging category I think we see.
0: We've spoken before about COVID accelerating some of the change in in the industry and clearly you're a strong believer in digital assets. But as I said, with COVID accelerating some of those changes in the industry and we spoke about the trend with more spending on digital but the asset mix not keeping up with that, but now people flocking to digital more Because of COVID, because we can't move around as much, we can't come together as much, how do you see both brands and rights holders cutting through all that clutter on digital?
2: It's difficult. But my answer to this is quite a simple one in that I think we start five yards ahead of the pack in this race because we are talking to people about stuff they care about. If it's normal activity on social media, from an advertising marketing perspective, people don't care, like people don't, the industry likes to to be controversial here, the industry likes to think that consumers care about advertising, they don't care about advertising, they care about stuff they like, and, and stuff they like to see, which might be an ad, they don't care about advertising per se, so the fact that we are talking to someone about a sport they love, a music event they love, whatever it might be, a person they love, we start five yards ahead because they're immediately more likely to be engaged because it's they're talking to them in the realms of something they care about, rather than just something that's been pushed at them that they didn't ask for. It might be good, the the you know, the brand or the agency whoever's responsible for it may have done a cracking job and capture their engagement, but normal advertising, no one asks for it. Sports sports content, people want. People have a desire for that stuff. And that's the differentiator I see, and you know, I'm sure someone more senior and experienced and I could come on and disagree with me on that but I, I can't I can't see another I can't see how I'm wrong <laughs> in that one in terms of that people didn't ask for advertising no one has ever asked for it no, normally it's actually the other way around we, we pay premiums to avoid it so this is different this is actually stuff they want to see so I think that's a simple answer and obviously the, the implementation of that is different because uh, depending on what sport you're, you're in what brand you are and stuff so it's probably difficult for me to say too much more on that but I think we start from that position of strength it's just about finding the I suppose the secret source for what that what that magic is that will make people take something positive away about the brand that's sponsoring it or the rights order themselves. But I think the the willingness to engage is you're already there. People want it.
0: Would you agree or disagree with the industry needing to see a reset in how we interpret the perceived value of assets? So not the dollar value, but more the intangible value of assets.
2: I would agree with that because what tends to happen is that it's kind of just, you know, you do, you, you value all the tangible assets you can, and then you go, you put, there's a nominal percentage allocated to intangible, but it's just all grouped together. And so if you think about what's in that intangible stuff, it's things like the ability to associate with the platform, you know, UEFA, FIFA, you know, the IOC Olympics, you know, an athlete, that's pretty powerful. It's the, Presence of your logo. I mean, the the actual media value can be valued, but the the, just the fact that your logo is around something that people care about and think is cool or have a particular uh, has particular attributes to it isn't valued. So, anyway, just a couple of examples there. But my point is, is that that stuff is really powerful. So we're actually undervaluing that quite heavily now. How exactly we put a value on that is 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 the tricky part, and I don't necessarily have the answer to that. We are looking into it actually of how how we can provide some value to that. But I suppose directly answer your question, I would agree we need to reset it. And actually the reset, we should actually be more ballsy about how we how we value it because we're probably underselling it right now because some of the stuff that goes into intang- the intangible pot is some of the most powerful stuff we have.
0: I'm loving this chat and your views on the change in the industry at the moment. And so I want to ask one around contracts. A contract typically comes into play quite late in the conversation when we're exploring sponsorship. Do you see this changing and perhaps a reset in how sponsorship or brand managers understand the contract, seeing that contracts very quickly took centre stage as the pandemic started and that there has been plenty written and discussed, including on this show, when it comes to contracts recently?
2: I think so. Contracts, I think in the pre-COVID world were seen as a sort of means to an end as such. It was more the formalization, and then they get put in a drawer and never brought out of that drawer until either you renew the contract next time round or there's a, an issue that needs to be resolved. Other than that, they're never really referred to because it then moves into you know, asset manuals, guidelines, that kind of stuff that then becomes the kind of Bible as such that are used to, to make the sponsorship happen. So as a result, you've got to question what's the value of the contract really other than it just being a legal formality and i think actually then what what needs to happen is the contract should almost start earlier in terms of some of the by the time you get to round the table with the lawyers the commercial assets should almost be pretty much agreed i would say you shouldn't really be starting to discuss those in any detail now obviously there might be some legal language that needs to be added around them but i mean in terms of the the general nature of what those assets are, in terms of, you know, to use an e- easy, bit of a lazy example, but if the client, uh, the branding question is all about providing tickets to a loyalty program, then they should almost have that sort of agreed already. And that and that sort of almost should be a list of stuff that you can just hand to the lawyers and say, look, this is already agreed. Uh, we want to, and then obviously, if we add in some of the flexible stuff we talked about earlier in terms of we want to discuss this again in two years, can you now put that into a contract? And then we'll come back around the table to discuss. How that's been worded in the contract and then any other sort of the, of the more formal legalities, and demnasties, warranties, force majeure, et cetera, that need to be discussed. So actually, whilst the contract, the contracting point probably for practical reasons, does need to sit at the end of the journey, we should have actually done most of the work beforehand and done it on the basis of what's really going to make the difference to the brand and the rights holder from a commercial perspective to then just insert into the contract in a sort of official legal way. That that's how I think it should. It should change. And some of the stuff I said before, in terms of it being put into a drawer, that shouldn't really be the case. We should either have have it there front and centre and it should mean something rather than just being there as a last resort. But in order to do that, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to get the contract itself out. It could just be some of these documents that are created that inform the contract in terms of what, what actually happened, but it's related to the contract. So that's how I think we need to change.
0: I think it's a great point about assets pretty much already being agreed before the lawyers get involved and it's probably a really easy segue and lead in and put my hand up, it's probably a little bit lazy on my part, but how do you see the role of sponsorship contracts? evolving in the next few years. And by that, what I mean is, will it be led by ensuring we achieve specific outcomes? Or do you think that the general legal jargon that ensures the right type of insurance or indemnification is still front and center? For example, will we start to see things like objectives and key results or outcomes? And you alluded to some of those things earlier on in the show. Do you think they'll actually be contracted? Or Will we just still see everyone flock to ensure that that, you know they get the right clauses and things like that in a contract?
2: So I think what will end up happening will be that obviously force majeure has obviously been particularly front and centre during the pandemic. I think we'll end we'll we'll, we will get back to an inverted commas normal ways of working with regards to that kind of stuff in terms of there will be an accepted. Templated clause that largely will roll out across all all contracts, or or it be slightly modified, but largely the same. We'll, I can't see it not getting back to that. But I think what to to your question, so I think that that will be one part. where that will still still happen, and and indemnities, warranties, and stuff will will have sort of a templated fashion. Where I think we will see differences, I don't think it's probably in the interest of the brand or the rights holder all the time to have totally specific and mapped out objectives contracted, because on both sides, things can change. Doesn't necessarily, I'm not talking pandemics here. I just mean in terms of a brand could suddenly have a budget cut, which means that they can't invest as much money that would have allowed them to achieve that objective and the rights holder can't then be on the hook or, or you know, subject to losing some of the rights fee if the if the brand hasn't invested what they said they were going to do and things like that. So. There is a reality that you can probably only contract it to a certain level. What I think we will see is a lot more pointed pieces in there around what the intention of the sponsorship is and that both parties in good faith should be able to have you know discussions around whether it's working, what changes need to be made in order to make those happen. That's possibly as far as we can maybe go, again, at a general level. Each case will be a bit different. We may be able to go further. But at a general level, it might be that kind of, here's what we're trying to achieve. Here's how here we want to do it. And we'll both work in good faith to achieve that rather than going down to the sort of 15th decimal place in terms of an objective, just because there are so many factors outside of both parties' control that may influence that. And neither one would want to probably be on the hook to deliver something that in some ways is out of their control, which again is obviously the principle of a contract is you put everything in, it's in, it's in both parties' control to be able to deliver what's written in the contract. So we can't probably change contract law But we can probably just have a bit more flexibility and slightly openness and good faith and best endeavours type language. And again, I know in some ways people might say that's a bit meaningless, but I think we don't have it at all now. So let's put it in there and it's at least something to refer back to, to have that sort of good faith and best endeavours to do certain things. And that will move us on a bit because everyone will be in no uncertain terms of what the intention is and we'll be left to no interpretation.
0: Like so many industries, ours has been heavily affected and and consequently we've seen mass changes to staffing and spending and running events and, and everything in between. What do you think the next six months have in store for us? And I appreciate a lot of us want to try and have an eye on the longer term, but for me, I kind of feel there's still that sense of just Getting through the next six months because we can see certain areas of the world change very, very quickly. So I'd love to get your six-month view.
2: I can best talk about this from a Fuse perspective because it's obviously what I'm closest to. We're looking at how we pivot our business to make sure we're ready for the post-COVID world. And what I mean by that is we're not just reacting purely to the last six months because you'd hope, fingers crossed, everything crossed, that this is so unique and we'll never see anything like this again but going back to a previous comment i made what i think we feel is that certain changes that were starting to happen will, will accelerate so whether that's the move to digital the increased focus on measurement data being at the heart of everything we do that's going to happen quick more quickly so what we're doing is pivoting our business a little bit in terms of whether that be people's job descriptions people's responsibilities the objectives we have ourselves conversations we have with clients the way we pitch for new business Trying to look at how we can set ourselves up for the long term, and we're spending the next. Well, hopefully, it won't take us as long as six months. But we started it, you know, a month or two ago, and we'll probably spend, you know, as we as we build our plan for 2021 and beyond, we're going to spend the time making sure that we do, you know, if, there, if there's going to be anything positive coming out of COVID, we want to make sure that we've used the time and the the uh, situation to be able to pivot our business to make sure that we're future fit for the way that the, biz- the industry is going to move. So that's that's how it is. And I think as I've kind of listed them, but the things that I think we, we're we're gonna focus on are definitely going to be digital measurements, our general strategic consultancy capabilities across the board. As I say, you can be strategic in the way you asset, you manage assets and data, data and analytics. So those areas are there where we're we're gonna focus on that that's our six month plan. We are unlikely to be able to, you know, bring in loads of hires given the economic situation and the impact that it's had on us as a business, but it doesn't mean we can't set up the training for people internally, pivot people's roles, set us right job specs for when we are in a position where we can go out and hire us, that we're ready to go with those kind of things. We're doing all that kind of stuff to make sure that we're ready for for the long term. So spending the next six months managing existing relationships that we have, we spent the first part of lockdown really trying to reconcile contracts with clients, what projects were and weren't going to happen, what did and didn't they need to pay us for, and where did that leave us and so on. Now we've kind of got out of that a little bit and you know fingers crossed where it won't uh, you know, we won't have a second wave of the virus and therefore you know have to do that all again. I mean, you know, we, can't, we don't know, but hope in, in the hope that we're out of the worst of it, when I like spending the next six months making sure we're pivoting in the right direction.
0: So Fuse was recently announced as Vodafone UK's agency of choice to activate its partnership with the British and Irish Lions. Congratulations. It's a bright spot in, in what is a very difficult time at the moment. And having played a key role in negotiating the contract and the activation strategy... I'd love to get your sense and thoughts on how the collaboration came about and and particularly those feelings around any changes around how the relationship came about and and how you're working together because I appreciate you can't speak about the nitty-gritty of the Activation.
2: Apologies, it's because it's all so new. We're still building the plan. Um, I can't speak too much about what's what's in store, but it'll be good, trust me. Um, so Vodafone is a great story for us. And actually, I should the credit on this should go to our CEO, my boss, Lou Johnson, who actually has kept the Vodafone relationship going for the best part of 10 years. So Vodafone was actually Fuse's founding client, um, funnily enough. We're 11 years old now, 12 years old now. And when Vodafone, if you think back, eleven years ago, Vodafone was sponsoring Formula One. They had Ferrari and then McLaren Mercedes. They were title partners of there was Vodafone McLaren Mercedes back then. They had Manchester United and then Champions League. They had England cricket. So they had a lot of partnerships. So they were actually our founding client. We did some strategic consultancy work for them to help them renew their McLaren partnership back then. And then we latterly became their activation, lead activation agency. And then actually we built our events and experiences division. Off the back of a pitch we won for vodafone so they've been a kind of they've been our founding client, and they are after a few years of you know vodafone mcclaren mercedes and some of the other partnerships they they made a business decision to scale back from major sports sponsorships but we kept the relationship going as i say lou lou and some of the other people in the business kept the relationship going we did some event work for them we did some strategic consultancy that didn't then result in any sponsorships being signed through for about a five six year period and then the UK business of Vodafone decided that they wanted to get back into sponsorship and, and then through some work with us identified the Lions as a, as a potential partnership. So that was the, the discussions had kicked off pre, pre-COVID. pre So we'd, we'd kind of started the, the contract negotiations, not formally, but we'd started discussions with the Lions pre-COVID. So it was kind of a continuation of that during, during lockdown. But yeah, we were very proud to be, you know, probably one of the only major sponsorships that's been announced during this period. But I think interestingly it taught us a lot of lessons and, you know, gotta credit the team again and actually the, the right sort as well for, you know, approaching things a little bit differently. And again, I have to be a little bit coy about what I do and don't say, but you know, things like force majeure and the what Vodafone wanna get out of the partnership was reflected in the contract and some of the changes I've talked talked about before were implemented into this contract and actually will stand both parties in good stead in terms of what each of their ambitions are out of this partnership. And both parties will be held accountable to it in a good way. You know, that that, that you know, Vodafone feel that they've got a partner in the Lions that are are understanding what their objectives are, are on board with them from the start. Everything's been geared around that and the Lions feel that Vodafone is a partner that's going to you know, they can trust in, that's going to be there for them during the tour. Obviously the tour has been moved. It was you know, had Vodafone not signed, it would have been, you know, not my job, but so I may be speaking unfairly. But you'd think it would have been hard for them to find another partner that wouldn't have been Vodafone. So, you know, the the Lions understand the value that Vodafone are bringing, but equally the line uh, the Vodafone know the value that the Lions bring. So, I think the the conversations we've had around contract were definitely innovative and new for everyone. And in terms of activation, as you can imagine, a lot of the short term plans are digital focused, just because physical activity around the Lions can't take place right now. But obviously, as and when the tour comes round and the situation with the pandemic, that we'd hope that there'll be a lot of physical activation coming coming too as well. And Vodafone definitely believe in that. There's obviously just a reality right now that it's what we can and can't do with it.
0: Well, congratulations again. Like you said, it's one of the few major sponsorship announcements during what is a difficult time in in the industry. In our last episode of the show, we spoke to Andrew Clark from Octagon here in Australia, where we briefly talked about whether our industry had the skill set or the mindset to deal with the challenges that we face in COVID. As the industry recovers and moves into this, and I hate to say it again, the new normal, what do you feel are sort of the top two or three things sponsorship managers or, or account directors Really need to be skilled at. And I'm curious because you alluded to it before that uh, even though you might not be taking on staff, you can be investing in training at this time.
2: So I think the three things I would say. So the first one's a bit of a looser one, but I think it's probably the most important. It's got sort of bigger picture thinking. So there's probably not a training course you can do on that. But I think where we all need to upskill, whether you're the most junior or the most senior, is. Being able to see the bigger picture, and rather than just being doing what's asked of us, thinking about the wider implications, why are we doing this? what is there a better way of doing it? I think you know again, going back to the article I wrote for Sports Pro, some of the legacy stuff we've we've had in our in our ways of working, and again, it's not a unique thing to um, sports marketing, I don't believe, should be challenged. You know why do we do certain things? Why do we just do what we're asked all the time and just provide the ser- same service that we provided the year before? Understand it's you know we're not just going to challenge everything for the sake of challenging it, but account directors, account managers, what commercial recommendations can they really making to the business based on what they've read about what the either their own business or the client they're working with business is doing? Have they spotted something themselves? You know, most people that work in sports marketing tend to be fans of sport. What have they noticed? Think of yourself as a consumer. What sort of stuff do you, would you actually want to watch? Don't, don't get yourself insular into the industry. You know, as I said before about one of the, the advertising industry, I think it has a certain perception of itself that perhaps isn't actually true in the real world. And I think sometimes we are guilty of that. We market to ourselves sometimes. You know, we do these things. It's, it's a world first because it's the first time someone's done this on a platform that no one's heard of, but it's the first time it's been done, so aren't we great? It's like, who actually cares about that? Who really cares about that? in the real world, you as a consumer, would you really care about that? So I think thinking bigger picture and think, taking yourself outside of your bubble is probably the main one. And as I say, it's a bit loose because there's not a, a manual you can read on that. But I think we all just need to read more in the trade press, read more in the financial press as well. Again, something I've started to do a lot more, but was guilty of not doing before. We need to have a broader perspective on the world rather than getting trapped in a little bubble. And being able to, and that, well, that will set them apart rather than just being someone who can be, well, it's not going to be good enough just to be someone who's operationally really good anymore. You've got to be someone who's operationally good, but actually has something else to offer as well. It doesn't? You don't have to be the most creative person. You don't have to be the most strategic person. You could be one of those or neither of them, something else, commercial, but offer something different. And to do that, I think you need to understand the bigger picture. Second of all, I think, you know, again, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but. I think we all need to upscale our digital understanding. I'm not a digital expert. It wasn't my background. Again, try my best to to get there and, and understand, you know, at my level, what I need to do to be able to make a difference. But I think we all need to make an effort to understand things like, you know, again, not necessarily intricate details, but what algorithm changes of Facebook and Instagram made that make it more or less user-friendly for brands to engage with consumers. And as a result, what recommendations can we make to our clients? We don't necessarily have to be the one that plans and buys it, but those sort of areas and to understand the nature of how digital mark, digital is consumed and, and digital marketing is planned and bought is probably the, the, the second thing I would recommend. And I think the, the third thing I would say is I think we need to be more challenging to each other. So... When a rights holder sends a presentation to an agency, that agency should do the rights holder a favour and give a perspective on what brands look to like to see. You know agencies we' are fortunate we kind of sit in the middle it has its advantages and disadvantages, but one of the advantage advantages, sorry, is that we see the rights holder's perspective and we also see the brand's perspective. So we can kind of understand where perhaps there are odds or where actually there's a way in which we can get those two things together let's use that and let's actually help each other rather than sometimes being just middlemen that pass things around we need to be seen as consultants i think is slightly linked to my first answer my first point i guess that we need to be seen as more consultants than just deliverers so those are probably the three things i think we all need to um on and i think if i was to add a fourth if i'm allowed to it would be um it would be understanding the role of data because you know we've heard for years now data-driven marketing what does that mean for us? Again, I'm not saying I've got all the answers to this and we're, we're trying to, to get there. But what does data-driven marketing mean? How do we use data? We shouldn't just use data for the sake of because it's data. Let's use data because it actually has a tangible outcome. So I think if people get under the skin of, you know, without, again, not being necessarily being marketing scientists, because that's quite a hard thing to be, um, what actually do we want data to do and then bring in the people around you that can make that happen but what actually is data we're trying to do from it rather than just saying well i need to be data driven you know what are you actually trying to to get out of it
0: four really great points there Uh, amazing advice Stephen. that was a fantastic chat and, and some amazing insights if listeners want to connect with you and keep the conversation going or find out more about what fuse does what can they do where can they go From a
2: Fuse perspective, go to our website, www.fuseint.com, and on there you'll see links to the work we do, the services we offer, some of our thought leadership pieces, and also a way of contacting us if you've got any general questions. Personally speaking, um, LinkedIn, I'm quite open with my LinkedIn. I connect with most people happy to have a conversation with anyone who wants to. I'm passionate about, you know, I don't see this just as a job as such. I'm really passionate about the industry. It's what I want to work in for the rest of my career. And I'm an ambitious person. So anyone that wants to debate stuff with me, I'm happy to disagree with people, you know, in a positive way and for them to disagree with me. I definitely don't have all the answers and my mind's definitely changed by other people's perspectives. So I'd be more than willing for people to connect with me, Stephen Hutchison on my LinkedIn. And yeah, I think, they're probably the two main things. Fuse also has a Twitter and Instagram platform that you can, and LinkedIn, actually, that you can connect with us on. So those are probably the easiest ways to get in touch with us and we'd love to talk to anyone.
0: And, of course, listeners, we will put all the links to everything Stephen just mentioned in the show notes at coresoftware.com. Stephen Hutchison, Managing Director at Fuse, thank you so much for coming on the show and taking us inside Fuse and your thoughts on the sponsorship industry at the moment.
2: A pleasure and thanks a lot for inviting me on. It's a privilege and I've really enjoyed the conversation as well and hope the listeners enjoy it and even if they disagree, get some thinking about something.
0: Great chat with Stephen. While I love lots of the nitty-gritty of sponsorship management that we hear from some of our guests, I also like some of that big picture thinking and the approaches. It really does give my head some space to ponder lots of different things and how they might apply and I trust it does the same for you, and you've got lots of value out of hearing from Stephen. You can find out more about Fuse by visiting fuseint.com. And as Stephen said, they also have a Twitter and Instagram account. Just search for the handle fuse underscore agency on both of those platforms or follow the links from their website. You can connect with Stephen directly on LinkedIn. Just search for Stephen. That's Stephen with a P-H and Hutchison, H U T C H i s o n of course all the links are in the show notes at core software Com. That's a wrap for episode 87. Thank you so much for joining me. And a reminder, please get in contact and drop me a line and say hi, and I'll give you a shout-out on the show just like I did for Andrew. I really do love hearing from you, the listeners, however you're connected with the industry. So please get in touch. If you want to connect with me, you can do so on LinkedIn. Just search for Daniel Oyston. That's O-Y-S-T-O-N. And if you want to connect with Core Software's commercial director, APAC, Daniel Collier-Hill, you can catch him on daniel.collier, C-O-L-L l-i-e-r, at coresoftware.com or search for him on LinkedIn as well. Until next time, I'm Daniel Loyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship. Thanks for listening to the show. For more episodes and to subscribe to the show, search for Inside Sponsorship on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you listen to your podcasts. Also, for more free industry specific resources, including blogs, ebooks, white papers, and our Insights newsletter, head to coresoftware.com. Finally, be sure to follow Core Software on Twitter and LinkedIn.